Whether you're here in the room or at home, I hope you will take your Bible and open to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. As I think about our church, those of us who make up Southern Hills, I feel pretty confident that that we come together united around common goals. I hope you you feel this way, that that we come together with common desires. Give you some examples. I think that as a church, we come together as a people. We come together with many differences, but I think we come together united on this, that we want to be people who please God. We want to be a people who live according to his will. As part of that, those of us with families, I think we desire to, to, to have families that please God. If you've been with us on Wednesdays, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the gift of marriage and what it looks like to love one another the way Christ loves us. And what it looks like for us to have marriages that are pleasing to God. And I hope this is your desire that whether you're married or not, that the, the, the marriages of our church would reflect the love of Christ. I think we're united that we want our kids to, to know and to trust God. We want them to grow up to be people who recognize their need for him, that recognize that there's nothing that satisfies apart from him. We, we desire as a church collectively that our kids would grow up to, to know him and to experience the forgiveness of their sins. Like I said, I think these are things that unite us. As I think about us as a church, I believe that even after a hard year, we desire for God to do great things in us and through us. Hopefully we agree on these things. We want to see people saved, right? We want to see the church strengthened. We want to be fruitful. Don't don't you want to be fruitful, right? Not only individually, but as a church. To see more and more people change like we have in our purpose statement. To help people experience life change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, I hope that these are things that we are united around, that we agree upon. And yet, even as I believe that we agree on these things and we all have these desires, I wonder, what are we trusting in or who are we trusting in? in order to see these things take place? That's the question a little more specifically. Who or what are we trusting in for right standing before God? Are you trusting in your own ability to do the right thing? Are you trusting in your church attendance? Is this weekly gathering, this hour or two a week, Is this what you're trusting in for that right standing before God? Or are you trusting in your general morality? I'm I'm generally a good person. I'm, I'm generous. I'm kind. I love my friends and family well. The question is, what are we trusting in for that standing before God? We can go back to the list and just go down that list. What are we trusting in in order to have families that are pleasing to God? What are we trusting in in order to have a marriage that holds up and reflects Christ to the world? What are we trusting in or depending on for our kids to 
know and love and follow God? As I ask these questions, I fear that many of us have placed a lot of faith in what we can do. And to be clear, there are things that we must do. But the question is ultimately, who or what are we trusting in for these things to take place? Go to that last category, the category of our church. We desire together, I I believe, I hope, that we desire to see the church strengthened and built up, increasing as people are saved. The question is, what are we trusting in in order to see these things come to pass? Are we trusting in what we can do as individuals? And let me be honest and admit that I am prone to trusting myself too much. Maybe you are too. Trusting what you can do, or maybe you're trusting, as you think about the church and our health of our church, you're trusting in what other people will do. So if this person or that group does this or that, things will be different. And again, there are things that we must do. We must gather, we must go and tell, we must love and serve. But the question I'm trying to push us towards, where I'm trying to get us to is, what are we ultimately trusting in for these things to happen? What power do we believe in? Our willpower? Our collective power? So I asked the question, I know that if I went down and went around the room, you would give the right answer, right? What should we trust in? And we would say, confidently and collectively, we trust in God. So then there's a follow-up question. If we believe that God is ultimately the one who will do this thing, the one who will change us, who will heal our marriages, who will bring our kids to him, if he is the one we trust, how faithful are we in asking him to do these things? Do you see that next important connection? It's one thing to say that we trust and we believe that God is the one who does these things. The question is, are we faithful in asking him? And perhaps our lack of faithfulness in asking him is evidence that we don't truly believe that he is the one who will do it. The question is, do we believe that he can work in our lives? Even in those places where we have been struggling for years. Do we believe that he can bring change in our marriage, in our families, in the lives of our children? Do we believe that he can do a work in our church? Do we believe that he has the power to do great things among us? This morning as we come back to Mark, this is the focus of the passage. We're pushed to answer the question, do we believe in the power of God? And if we say yes, are we asking him to show his power in us? If you were with us last week, you'll remember we talked a lot about a tree. Remember Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree off in the distance. As he sees it, it looks like a fruitful tree. He goes to it to to see if he can find something to eat, but as he gets closer, he realizes it's all leaves and no fruit. 
Do you remember how he responded? As he sees this beautiful looking tree, but worthless when it comes to fruit, we're told that he cursed it. He cursed the tree, and by the next day, that tree had withered and died. And at first read, it may just seem like a weird overreaction by Jesus to curse a tree for not having fruit. But it was purposeful, and we talked last week that it was a a parable. See, the fig tree was representative. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel, the people of God. And the people of God had their religion, and they had their leaves. They looked good, but their hearts were far from God. And so in this parable, Jesus announces coming judgment. He has this interaction with the tree, and then he moves into Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple. And in the temple, he starts flipping tables and running people out. And once again, it's a parable. He's announcing that you have done all of this in an effort to have religion, and yet your hearts are far from me. So Jesus announces the displeasure of God and the judgment that's coming on the house of Israel, a people who had lost their way, who were not trusting in God, but trusting in themselves, in their religion. He curses the tree, he clears out the temple. And this morning, we're going to consider the conversation that happens the next day. And it's related. Because we have Israel, weak in faith. And then we have Jesus calling on his disciples to believe and to trust. He's teaching them about the power of God, and it's a call for them and for us to believe in his power. So that brings us to where we are in Mark chapter 11. The focus this morning will be on verses 22 to 25. We'll start back up at verse 20 for context. Hear the word of God. As Jesus and the disciples passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Which means that this word is as true today as it was when it was written. It's been given to us for our benefit. So we ask that God will use his word to speak to our hearts this morning. If you're keeping up with the timeline, the timeline of the story, it's now Tuesday. Remember the triumphal entry took place on Sunday. It was on Monday when Jesus curses the tree and clears the temple. They go back and they spend the night in Bethany. Now it's Tuesday morning and they're headed back into Jerusalem. 
And as they go, they pass by the tree that Jesus had cursed, and Peter points it out. He points out that the, the tree is withered from the roots. Just think for a second about all the miracles the disciples have seen. Storms stopped, people healed, some even brought back from the dead. And here's another one. Just at his word, a tree is dead. We have a lot of dead trees around, but it's because of a week-long freeze, right? This was just the word of Christ, killed it to its roots. It's Peter pointing out the dead tree, and Jesus responding to that. That's where we get the context of our story. But remember the bigger context, a faithless nation of Israel, And also Jesus knowing that very, very soon he will be leaving his people and entrusting to his disciples the the mission. So we have the faithless Israel and the disciples who will need faith. And that's where we get this teaching that power is available to those who come to God in faith. Jesus knows what the disciples have in front of them, what they're going to face, and the ministry he's going to give them will seem impossible, won't it? So this is his command. This is the command of the passage, the title of the sermon. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Jesus answers in verse 22, have faith in God. And the context is important. Once again, We've seen the faithlessness of Israel. That's why we had the cursing of the tree and the clearing of the temple. And now Jesus, speaking to those who will carry on the mission, calls them to faith, to trust, to belief. It seems like a pretty basic command, doesn't it? Have faith in God. But of course, we've seen over and over the struggle that the disciples have had with faith. Go back to chapter 4. Remember they're in the boat. The storm comes. Jesus is asleep. They go and they wake him up and they accuse him of not caring for them at all. He gets up and with a word he calms the storm. And then you remember what he says to them? Mark chapter 4 verse 40. He says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's just one of a few examples that we've had along the way of Jesus reminding the disciples of their need for faith. And now here, once again, the week that he's going to the cross, not long before he will entrust the ministry to them, he reminds them of this most important thing. And this is what we must leave with this morning, this call, this command, trust God. Have faith in him. If you want to see the power of God in your life, Starts with faith. But it's something the disciples struggled with, even those who even having been those who lived in the presence of Christ, and it's something that we struggle with as well. Because here's what we do: we look at the situations of our lives and we determine, we decide things will never change. Are you guilty? Of looking at some parts of your lives and determining that's just the way it's going to be? The struggle is too deep, the temptation is too strong. It's too late to change. Maybe as you look at your relationships, a relationship with a a parent or with a spouse, 
and you determine that the problem goes too deep, it's been compounded for too long, it's just the way it's going to be. Or maybe your struggle to believe is a struggle with your kids, believing that they will never turn to Christ, their hearts are too hard. The struggle could be seen in our church and the way we look at what's happening among us. We could start to believe that God could never use us to reach our community. We're too small, have too few resources. And this is the temptation to decide that this is just the way it's going to be. And yet we have this instruction from Jesus. Do you want to see the power of God revealed? He says, have faith. Have faith in God. And not just, and this is where the text starts to ramp up a little bit, not just faith in the things that you can figure out how they could possibly happen, but faith in the things that seem impossible. So we come to verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and the one who does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Sometimes I tease Michelle because one of her her go-to phrases is, I'll be honest with you. It's a common saying, a lot of people say it. I'll be honest with you, which as a very literal person, when I hear that, I just hear this implication that everything else you've said is probably a lie. But now, thankfully, you're going to be honest with me now. A teaser. It's a, it's a lot of people say it, right? Just the way we speak. I'll be honest with you. And it's a way of saying, this seems unlikely. This may seem surprising, but this is really true. Well, Jesus has his own version of, I'll be honest with you. He says there in verse 23, truly, I say to you which isn't saying that everything else Jesus has said is untrue, but he brings this up at certain points when he's speaking. He says, truly, I will be honest with you. Let me tell you the truth. God is able to do things that you think are impossible. Truly. God is able to do things that you think are impossible. Let me give you an example. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So we we picture Jesus and his disciples. They're coming from Bethany. They're going to Jerusalem. They have to cross over the Mount of Olives. So perhaps they're there. Perhaps they can look back at it. Maybe Jesus stops them and points back at the Mount of Olives, which is close to the Dead Sea. And he says to them, This mountain can move. It can be taken up from where it is and thrown into the sea. If someone asks in faith. You're probably familiar with the verse, but don't let familiarity get in the way. Picture us. He's talking about a miracle unlike anything the disciples have seen. They've gotten accustomed to seeing people healed. But this is a new level, isn't it? Geography being changed, mountains being relocated. It fits squarely in the category of impossible. Who would think of telling a mountain to move to a new place and actually believing that it would happen? 
But this is the point. Jesus is saying this. This is what we should hear. Things that seem impossible to us are possible with God. The question for us is, do we believe that God does the impossible? And the point of the illustration is the call to have faith in the power of God. But we struggle here, don't we? Because we're trained all of our lives to see things logically and to filter things through our own experiences. Where I said, I'm a logical person. So we say, that's what needs to happen. And so I start evaluating, is that possible? Okay, I can't figure out, has anyone else ever seen this happen? Let's get some case studies going. Survey says mountains don't move. We never think to ask for mountains to be moved because our experiences tell us that they don't. And yet perhaps knowing that we should pray, we, we do, but we do so half-heartedly. We ask God for a big thing all the while having already determined in our heart that it will never come to pass. But do you hear the words of Christ? He says, ask for the mountain to be moved and ask in faith without doubting. We're called to believe and to ask confidently for God to do the impossible. It's similar to James chapter one, isn't it? In James one, the request is for wisdom. Starting in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But ask, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's a request for wisdom and something that we probably all, on a weekly basis, recognize our need. God, I don't know what to do in this situation. And so we remember James 1, okay, if we ask God for wisdom, he will grant it. So God, I need wisdom, but I wonder if in the back of our mind we think, just got to go through the drill. God's one option, I'll ask him for wisdom. If, if that doesn't happen, then I'll move on to something else. James says, no, 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 you have to ask without doubting to go to God and to ask, but not really believing that he can do it. It's, you're like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth following the wind. James says, no, God gives wisdom to the person who trusts him, to the person who asks without doubt. And this is the same thing that Jesus is saying. We must be a people who come to him in faith. Do we believe that God can do the things that without him would be impossible? So let me just push you to think about your situation. What is it in your life that you have decided is never going to change? Or maybe for you, it's not a what, it's a who. Who in your life have you decided is never going to change? They've been caught in sin for too long. They've rejected Jesus for too long. They've ignored the truth for too long. See, we're inclined to see things as impossible. Mountains don't move. That person will never change. And so we don't ask. Or he asked all the while doubting that it could ever really happen. 
We're weak in faith. Now, let me just add this qualifier, especially before we get to verse 24. Is this passage about our ability to make things happen? Is this a passage about the power of positive thinking or willpower? No, this is a passage about the power of God, isn't it? The question is not what can you do. The question is what can God do? And do we trust that he is able? This leads to the next thing that Jesus says. Maybe it's already been implied. That the way we show our faith in the power of God is through our commitment to prayer. We get the call to action in verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So if we have faith in God and we believe that God does the impossible, the next thing is to go to him, to pray, to ask, to believe. Now you've probably heard this verse before and I wonder what the first thing that comes to your mind is when you hear this verse. I'll be honest with you. Truly, I'll say to you, when I hear this verse, the first thing I think of is all the ways it's been misused. It's a verse that's been taken by some to build a whole movement that makes God out to be a genie in a bottle who's just waiting to give us whatever we want. If you've heard of the prosperity gospel or the name it and claim it theology, this is common and it's not just on the fringes, it's in really mainstream churches. The idea that all we have to do in order to get the things we want is to ask. And then if we don't get what we ask for, it's because we lack faith. So if you're poor, it's because you don't have enough faith to be rich. And if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith to be healed. And if your faith is weak, here's good news. You can mail a a check to the guy on the TV because he's a man of great faith. And if you pay him enough, he'll pray for you. Like I said, it's not not only the the people we see on late night TV. This is a a way of thinking that's infiltrated infiltrated churches and this whole theological system that has turned God into a cosmic wish grantor. And ultimately, God is not really the one with the power at all. The person of faith is the one who unlocks the miracle. What's happening is they're taking one saying of Jesus and basing everything on it and in the process ignoring so much of what the Bible says about prayer. For starters, something we see over and over in Scripture is that prayers are to be made in submission to the will of God. See, God doesn't grant every wish we have. God answers prayers according to his will. And you say, but Jesus says in Mark 11, well, let's just go to Mark 14 and see how Jesus himself prays. Mark chapter 14, the Garden of Gethsemane. We see there in verse 35, Jesus going a little farther falls down to the ground and he prays, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. We've talked about this, right? God is the God for whom all things are possible. Jesus says, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So here we have an example of a prayer from Jesus who believes that God can do all things and then submits himself to the will of the Father. 
It's an example of confident prayer, a prayer of faith offered up to the will of God. We could go to 1 John chapter 5. We read it together earlier. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. For we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Or James chapter 4. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see that? You're asking selfishly. You're asking for your selfish desires. And we could, we could spend a long time and unpack a proper view of prayer and what it means to trust God through prayer. We could go to 2 Corinthians 12 and consider that Paul prayed three times for a thorn to be taken away. And how did God answer him? The prayer of faith to Paul, from Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. There's a lot that we should consider as we consider prayer, but with all of that on the table, let me bring us back and say, what I don't want to do is diminish what Jesus has said here. So let's hear what he has said here. He says it the way he says it for a reason. He says, come to God believing that he can do beyond what you think or imagine. Believe that he can do the impossible. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. It's a prayer that says, I believe. We're to come to him in faith. And I think we need to be honest in assessing whether or not we trust God like this whether or not we trust him with our lives. So let's go back to our list again. Do we believe that God can change our hearts so we can resist sin? That's a prayer according to his will, isn't it? Don't we know that he desires for us to be victorious over sin? So the question is, do we go to him in prayer, believing that he can do this? Do we believe that God can heal broken relationships? Do we go to him in prayer, asking and believing that he can? Do you believe that God can save your children, give them new hearts? Do you pray, do you ask, do you believe without doubting that he can? Do we believe that God can use us, this church that he has assembled, to reach our community? Do we believe that he's brought us together for a reason? Do we pray? Do we ask in faith? I hope that you believe that God can work in you and through us. I hope you believe that God can save others from hell through your witness. And I hope you pray towards this end. Because Jesus says he will answer our prayers. The question is, are we asking? Are we asking in faith? I'll let you evaluate your own heart. How faithful are you in asking God to work among us? And do you believe that he can? When we set aside time to pray as a church, whether it's on Wednesday evenings or on a Sunday morning, when we call for collective prayer, do you see that as important and as a part of what, doing what God's called us to? Or is that just something peripheral. I think we need a greater trust and belief in what Jesus has told us, that we should come to him in prayer, believing that he can do these things, and he says that he will.
Could it be that God has not poured out his blessing on us because we've not been faithful to ask? Or maybe we ask, yet all the while filled with doubt. The disciples wanted to know how they could experience the power of God. Jesus says, have faith. Believe that God can do the impossible. And ask him without doubting. He will do it. So we've seen the call of faith, the power of faith, the action of faith. And then we see in verse 25, he turns the attention even more deeply on our hearts. Verse 25, he says, whenever you stand praying, standing was a common position for prayer for them. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Lots of theology here. Before we dive in, let's just remember the context. I don't think this is just a list of Proverbs. So he talks about faith, and then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about forgiveness. They're all together. The way we access the power of God is through prayer. And before we pray, we must consider, do we have pure hearts? When we come to God in prayer, we should come first with hearts of repentance, acknowledging our need for forgiveness. We are sinners and we should come to him acknowledging our sin and our need for forgiveness. And one of the most common ways we sin is through our unwillingness to forgive. I'm sure you all know what this is like. You've been sinned against, wronged by someone. And because of the hurt or because of the injustice of the situation or because of your pride or stubbornness, you're slow or maybe even unwilling to forgive. Notice what Jesus says here, that for the person of faith, this is not an option. As those who have been forgiven by God, we have no right to withhold forgiveness to others. And here Jesus says that if we do withhold forgiveness, it disrupts our relationship with God. And I think that's what he means here when he says, so that the Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. I don't think this is the forgiveness needed for salvation because we don't earn our salvation. What he's talking about here is this ongoing forgiveness that we receive as a part of the Christian life that brings us into close fellowship with Christ, with the Father. It goes back to Psalm 66 that we read together earlier. Psalmist says, I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So we have here this acknowledgement of how our sin, our withholding of forgiveness, impacts and hinders our fellowship with God. And so as we say, I believe in the power of God and I want to ask in faith for God to do these things in and through us, through me, we must consider, have we forgiven others? Is there someone that you've decided that you cannot forgive? And maybe for you, it's not some huge falling out you've had. But I wonder if you listened to your daily conversations, if you would notice the gossip and complaints about all the ways that you've been wronged. Right? Maybe it's just these little areas where you are not a person of forgiveness. And so you can't point to any one person who has wronged you egregiously, but it's just this constant, ongoing inability to overlook the ways you're sinned against. I'll remind you of Ephesians chapter 6. 
Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. In just a minute, we are going to share of the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder to us of the forgiveness that we have been granted. And as we eat and drink and remember, the question is, do we recognize how this is supposed to change us and set us free to offer forgiveness to others? How often are we slow or even unwilling to forgive? And in our slowness and our refusal to forgive, we are hindering our fellowship with God. And so we must check our hearts. As we come to God, eager to see his power in our lives, we must come with purity, forgiving others as we've been forgiven. And I do hope, I hope that you want to see the power of God in your life, in your family, in the church. I'll go back to where we started as we end. I think we have common goals. I think we desire the same things. We want God to work in and through us. We want to have marriages and families that please him, kids who trust him. We want God to work in our church. And so we have these questions that we've been asking. Do we believe that he can do these things? Do we believe that he can do things that otherwise seem impossible? If the answers are yes, then are we asking for these things? Are we a people of honest prayers, prayed in faith, with pure hearts? It's a reminder from Christ. It should motivate us to consider carefully who or what we are trusting. We know the God who has created all things, the one for whom nothing is impossible, the one who moves mountains, and the one who has invited us to come to him with our requests. So let's hear the call of Jesus. Have faith in God. Let's cry out to the one who Paul says is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.